You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. A break from our regular programming for this special episode, Raven's Reviews. September 21st, 2019, around 9.45 a.m., in order to avoid a confrontation, Garrett asked Megan Timms to move out. That person called the police, alleging some of her belongings were still inside Garrett's apartment. Officer Beale arrived shortly before 10 a.m. at Garrett's apartment. Upon his arrival, Timms complained that Garrett had evicted her from a nearby apartment and still had her personal property. Officer Beale knew, or should have known, that person did not have a right to authorize entry into Garrett's apartment. Officer Beale asked Timms to open the door of the property she had just been asked to leave. Officer Beale did not immediately identify himself as a police officer or ask Garrett for permission to enter the premises. No warrant or extension circumstances permitting the entry existed. When Garrett noticed his door being opened, he lawfully tried to and did in fact close and lock his door. At that time, Officer Beale allegedly identified himself as a police officer and asked for the woman's property. Garrett agreed to bag all of her things and leave it outside for her. While Garrett was gathering the personal belongings, Officer Beale continued to beat on Garrett's door and made efforts to force his way into Mr. Peterson's apartment. At this point, Officer Beale did not have a warrant, consent, or any other lawful, lawful basis to enter Mr. Peterson's home. Garrett made it clear that neither the former occupant nor Officer Beale were welcome in his home, that he did not consent, and he asserted his constitutional right to refuse entry into his home. And at no point did Garrett waive that right. Because of Defendant Beale's actions, Garrett was trapped in his own home. He could not freely leave this encounter, even in the sanctity of his own property, and was therefore seized in violation of his Fourth Amendment rights. With Officer Beale still outside of Garrett's home, Garrett called 911 to report that a police officer was trying to break into his house. Garrett requested help from the police to stop the unlawful actions of another police officer. Officer Beale was visibly upset. Rather than recognizing and respecting Garrett's constitutional rights, Officer Beale escalated his nature and his unlawful activity. Officer Beale then drew his gun and called for backup. Officer Canada was the first officer to respond on scene. As soon as Officer Canada arrived on the scene, she drew her gun. When Garrett peeked out the door to see what was happening, Officer Canada and Beale pointed their weapon at him. The pointing of a weapon at a person who poses no threat constitutes an excessive and unreasonable use of force. The officers, having no justifiable reason for aiming their weapons at Garrett, were doing so solely because Garrett was not obeying the police officers' unlawful commands. 
at all times relevant, Garrett was unarmed and posed no threat of serious bodily harm to any of the defendants. All he wanted was to be left alone. Officer Beale's own actions demonstrate the non-threatening nature of Garrett himself. Officer Beale set his gun down on the railing outside of Mr. Peterson's apartment and left it there for the remainder of the incident. Despite this, the officers used excessive force against Garrett in violation of his Eighth Amendment rights. Officer Canada and Beale were joined by Officer Meeks and later Officer Vogt. Officer Canada told Officer Meeks and Beale that as soon as she got through the door, she planned on tasering Garrett. Neither of those officers argued against planned use of force upon the forcible unlawful entry. Officer Meeks then began pushing Defendant Beale in the back, enabling Officer Beale to break through Garrett's front door. Unarmed, Officer Beale proceeded first into the apartment and immediately told Garrett, quote, you done fucked up now, end quote, and then told Officer Canada to, quote, tase this motherfucker, end quote. <clears throat> Officer Beale had immediately tackled Garrett, failing to prove failing to provide Garrett with any opportunity to comply with the unlawful arrest the officers had now initiated. Officer Canada made no attempt to actually arrest Garrett and instead tasered him repeatedly. When Beale and Meeks had Garrett's hands out, and Officer Meeks instructed Officer Vote, who by this time had arrived on scene to, quote, cuff him, Officer Canada instead ordered Officer Vote to step back so she could continue to taser Garrett. Officer Canada tasered him repeatedly, including holding down her trigger so that the cycle would last longer. The taser was a form of punishment, not restraint. It was used in a vindictive manner and with such utter disregard that Officer Canada even tasered Officer Beale. Officer Beale and Meeks yelled for Officer Canada to stop deploying her taser and instead help with the cuffing. After untangling himself from Officer Canada's taser wires, Officer Beale then attempted to taser Garrett himself. Officer Canada picked up Officer Vogt's weapon, which had fallen to the floor, and passed it to Officer Beale. In that moment, Officer Beale then decided to kill Garrett. Garrett was sandwiched between Officer Vote and Meeks, and Officer Vote had Garrett's left arm, and Officer Meeks had Garrett's right arm. Garrett was no threat to the officers, and at this time, he was more restrained and vulnerable than at any moment of the encounter. Officer Vote had his handcuffs out and was about to handcuff Garrett, but instead, Officer Beale told everyone to step back so he could shoot Garrett. None of the other officers made any effort to discourage or prevent Officer Beale from using lethal force at that moment. Instead, Officer Vote stepped out of the way, and Officer Beale shot Garrett three times. Garrett died on the floor of his own home. During the course of the incident, Officer Meeks yelled once that Garrett was going for his gun and twice that Garrett was going after Officer Meeks' gun. 
In fact, Garrett was unarmed the entire time, and at no point did he have possession, custody, or control of Officer Meek's gun. The video evidence contradicts any and all claims that Garrett was attempting to access any of the officer's weapons. Officer Meek's gun never left his holster. Once inside Garrett's apartment, no other officer ever pulled their gun or even pointed it at Garrett. The declarations that Garrett was reaching for a gun were meant to justify the continued escalation of violence by the officers. Immediately following the shooting, and before the officers even learned Garrett's name, the officers acted in concert amongst themselves and their supervisors to cover up for their misconduct. This includes creating a false narrative to justify the unlawful entry, creating a false narrative regarding the, quote, threat posed by Garrett, instructing one another not to give statements, agreeing to meet with one another to get their story straight prior to giving an official statement, instructing the involved officers to speak with various third parties prior to giving an official statement, using personal communication devices such as cell phones instead of radios to communicate with other officers so as to not leave a record, and authoring and approving false, inaccurate, and incomplete official reports. This all comes from the complaint filed against the city of Ada, Officer Marcus Beal, Officer Justly Canada, Officer Michael Meeks, and Officer Philip Vogt by Jarrett Adams and his team. If you would like to read this complaint for yourself, which was filed in December of 2019, you can find this complaint on our website at thesirenspodcast.com slash case files. It will be under the Peterson Mealy case. All right, let's go. Today I have a very special guest with me on the show. I have Jarrett Adams, civil rights attorney and author of Redeeming Justice from Defendant to Defender, my fight for equity on both sides of a broken system. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being on. So I want to talk about you, <laughs> if that's okay. Um, yeah. I have just finished this wonderful memoir. I kind of pushed it on my husband as well. <laughs> so I have been, um, because I have so much going on, so I kind of do this like weird thing where sometimes I read the book and sometimes I listen to the audiobook. So I've been listening to the audiobook at night forcing my husband to listen and he loves it absolutely oh, loves it that's good stuff i'm glad to hear that so tell me what inspired you to even write this memoir to begin with i mean part, part of it was so i go through through a stretch of my life that was just i mean it was just something else um i i guess the book describes it you know um in detail but it was it was just something else to go through. And then I thought when I got a law degree, I thought that I would be able for some reason to just defend everyone, make everything that's wrong with the system, you know, become instantly fixed. And it wasn't it wasn't reality. Right. And so I, I just did a bit of soul searching on on what is it that um, you know I could do, and I just kept seeing. Jared Adams, 17-year-old, 
with his mom just over and over and over and over again. And I would help some, but but not as many as I wanted. And it was it was just one of these things where I said, how can I make an impact, you know, to make a difference? And that means there has to be more people who are involved. Well, how do you get people involved? You have to reach them where they're compelled. And so in order to do that, I didn't want to write a book that was about, hey, look at me, I'm amazing. I went and got this degree, that degree. No, I took you to the most vulnerable moments in my life and my family's life. Because if you couldn't see yourself in me, everyone knows what it's like to have an aunt. Everyone knows what it's like to have a mom. You know, everyone knows and understands what it's like to not want to disappoint, to be raised a certain way, to be proud of who you are, proud of family. And so it just, it just, it took a lot to do this book. But the reactions that I've been getting from people is that this wasn't what I, what I was expecting when I opened the book and read it. And it took me on a journey and I couldn't put it down. For, for my listeners out there who maybe haven't picked up your book yet, and I want to mention that we can't talk about you without talking about your memoir because you put everything of yourself into this book. I could sit here and say, well, where did you start? What, why did you want to go to law school? Why did you want to, you know, stuff like that. But you've already told me. (laughs) You told me in your memoir. So for people who maybe have not picked up your memoir yet, who don't have the audiobook, let's talk about just maybe some light stuff of of what you've covered. First of all, you were wrongly imprisoned. Yes, um, I was. I was wrongly imprisoned at the age of 17, falsely accused of a, a sexual assault along with two friends. And we went on a, a, a tailspin journey that one could only describe as justice being for sale and what you can afford. Yes. You know, for the three of us, we had three different outcomes, me and my two friends. And we are literally just falsely accused of a false accusation no evidence this isn't your movie running out of the 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 scene and there's a high speed chase there is none of this we were kids at a dormitory party we had a consensual encounter there was an embarrassing moment of a roommate coming into uh um, a room and it just it spiraled out of out of control and it's just something that i could have never imagined but had we had been able to afford a defense uh, we wouldn't have been to, went to prison, but more importantly, had the police turned over the the evidence all from the beginning. From that essential witness, I keep thinking about that witness. Why wasn't that in just immediately put into your defense? And I feel like um, you're a hundred percent right. There are people out there who cannot afford a good defense. And it is very important that we're talking about this. Your book is very important to people to make them realize that if you can't afford it, you might go to prison, whether you have done the crime or not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our system is, 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 it's an eye opening and and you said it best. I put everything in the book and it's, it's basically an eye opener to every step of how the system will 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 grab you in its snares and literally never let you go unless you can afford to be let go. And you spent 
10 years of your life, your young life. Tell us about who helped you get out of there was the Wisconsin Innocent Project, right? Yeah. So I um, I am sitting in prison and I am trying to get myself out desperately. It takes a long time. One year becomes three years. Three years becomes four years. Before you know it, it's five years. Um, I had been in prison, you know, in jail altogether for almost 10 years at the time that the Seventh Circuit reversed my conviction um, after the Wisconsin Innocence Project took my case and argued it um, all the way up to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. I came home in February of 2007, and I was incarcerated in 1998, came home February 2007, and I went, did, you know, therapy intensely, uh, went to school, uh, started to get one degree, this degree, law school, graduated. Uh, I worked at the Innocence Project for a year, uh, a little bit over a year, and then I started my own firm. And so now I have offices in New York, Chicago, and Milwaukee, and uh, I'm taking cases all across the country. That is so great to hear. And you have an, you have an organization of some sort as well? I do. So I have a nonprofit. It's called Life After Justice. And basically what it does is it, it tries to help, you know, assist, create and support someone coming home, trying to reintegrate back into society. A lot of things that people don't really I don't think society appreciates that when someone's conviction is reversed and they get out, no one is entitled to anything um, right away, if anything at all. I was never compensated. The majority of the population who comes home is never is, is never compensated. There are things with immunity um, for officials. Um, while while you know, I think everyone is familiar with that immunity and stuff like that, which is the issue that the Supreme Court has continued to look at that covers professionals, police misconduct, and, and the, the sorts and that type. So it's 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 really something that until you it's layered. It's extremely layered until you start to peel back the layers and see what's under the hood of our justice system. I mean, you really just don't know. And so if it, if it wasn't for, you know, getting out and just being fortunate to have a family, then I wouldn't be here. And so Life After Justice is a, is a creation of a hub of support um, for board, both litigating actual innocence claims, supporting people after they come home. And arguing that legislation and litigation should be put in place because we we should stop celebrating when we reverse and right wrongs. And we should start to celebrate when we institute things in there to prevent them. Right, right. Yeah. And and you have a very good section in your book um, where you talk about once you got out, like you said, you don't get they don't even give you an apology, really. It's just yeah. and it's hard because you have lived your life as um, as an inmate for a, a good chunk of it, and even yeah. even inmates, you know, who have done a crime and they and they've been released, can come out and go, "I have no idea what to do." And but but then you talk about how they have institutions for convicted people who come out, but not yeah. people who were exonerated. Not people who are exonerated, and I don't. I don't think that that people know that. This is this is what I've come to realize from the study of law and from practicing law. A lot of the things that go on in the criminal sector 
and law in general. If the public knew it would be a, a pouring of outrage. But the reality is this. We don't want to believe that someone can go through something like a wrongful conviction, then get out and there not be services, some type of monetary support. We don't want to believe that that's the case because in our reasoned minds, we know it would only be right and reasonable that someone coming home from a wrongful conviction or someone needing support wouldn't be left on their own. Yeah. But the reality is they are. And it's not just the monetary support that you need. It is, um, you talk about how you go into your first job and your second job and you're going, really the only skills that I have had is X thing. I have no idea how to do whatever it is you're putting me into there were no services to help me figure that out to help me learn how to do it to help me you know they have job placements but they kind of expect yeah. you to already know what you're doing once you go into those jobs yeah i mean there there's there's that i mean the the study of of how we handle prisons in general um is something that you can you can read and you can see that there are studies being done in different countries and stuff right what we have to do as a society is this we have to have to accept the science when it speaks to us, the numbers that suggest that we're not doing it right, right? We're not any safer in our country because of the way we, we, we lock people up, yet we're leading the country and the population of our inmates are sometimes the size of certain countries themselves, right? We dwarf what Finland, Norway, and all of them in their prison systems combined. So, there are things just like we, we deal with gun violence. We deal with the conversation about why do we have so many guns and this many automatic this and that. And other countries don't deal with things the way that we deal with, with things in terms of violence, in terms of uh, criminal justice. And I think that we just need to rethink it. We need to allow ourselves to look at the data to say that, okay, this isn't working. They say that if people are incentivized, if people have jobs, then crime just doesn't necessarily have an opportunity to to, to grow, right? So it's, it's stuff like that 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 I think that we we have to move in in a um in a in a way in which if we know it's not working, let's try something else that is less supported with the data, and it and it's plenty enough things that we can do. Right, and we have not um, really changed anything since the institution came about. I mean, it remained. And as a matter of fact, everyone knows, I think can, can appreciate this as well. Its inception, you know, came from slave catchers to sheriffs to... So when you look at it, it is doing exactly what its original design was intended to do. That's why you have the disproportionate amount of African-Americans and people of color. I say, I, this is what I see in my practice. These inner cities, mainly, are feeding its youth to the prison systems, right? And in return, the prison is feeding the communities in which they come from. You know, people who come back home from, from long prison stints in their 30s, no job training, just what we're talking about right now, right? It was part of the reason why I wrote the book, because I think that I give a perspective from both having been in prison, and I'm not saying that there's not a need for a form of corrections. That's what I'm not saying, okay? There is. But there's a different way to do it. Yeah. And 
we definitely aren't doing it right when it comes to if you can't afford, then you don't somehow seem to get justice. And that goes for both my story and the book and the cases that I'm doing right now, like the Bailey, you know, Peterson um, and the Mealy case in, in Oklahoma. Where did you first hear about that case? I had a case down in, in Ada, Oklahoma, uh, a young man named Anthony Mealy. And Anthony Mealy died after an interaction with the police. And Anthony Mealy was African-American man who struggled with mental illness. And quite frankly, everything in the case deserved conflict resolution, some help. Let's calm him down. And it was anything but that. The thing about it is when you start to work on a case, you, you start to get to know the community and the families and the families in the community. You start to, to, cause that's the only way you're gonna be able to represent the people, right? Is by knowing, the, and so when I'm working on that case, someone tells me, look, this isn't an isolated thing. You know, the interactions with, with the police down here, they go from zero to a hundred. And it, it, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, let me look at this case. Then I got the, 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 the video. And the thing is we have video in both of the cases. So another situation, but this one is unique in the Bailey um, uh, uh, Peterson. Jeffrey Peterson is the young man and his mom is Christy Bailey. So the suit is brought on behalf of his estate and the estate is his is, is mom, Miss Bailey. So you may hear me say Bailey Peterson. If your audience hears me say Bailey Peterson, that's what I refer to. This is the difference in this case. And this is one of the reasons I took it. You have two cases now down there. You have a white officer and Anthony Mealy's case where clearly this man is is in is having a he's having a mental breakdown by all video accounts. And I know people you saw the video because I can see you shaking your head. So everyone else can can see it as well. I'm sure it'll be up. I have actually put that um, link to that video. If you would like to watch that video, it is on the website um, under our case file. So if you'd like to go and watch that cam video. In his case, in Mr. Mealy's uh, case, he needed help. He, he shouldn't have died. He needed someone to say, calm down. No one's trying to hurt you. Not someone to pull a gun out on him and chase him around the car and then wrestle him down. And then sit there and say, stop playing, stop joking. So that was a case where, unfortunately, we've seen all too many times. An officer interaction with a black man and he dies. The Bailey Peterson, this was different because this isn't what we're used to seeing. But it's the same thing and it allows me to prove a point. Here is an interaction between a black officer and a white mentally you know, at the time, unstable man whose anxiety may not be fully understood unless you know who he is, right? So maybe me and you may react differently. But even still, Mr. Peterson was in his home. There was a domestic dispute that was not violent. Nothing, to be honest with you, not even a, a domestic dispute in which a young lady that he was involved with that he let stay the night, he didn't want her in his house anymore. He asked that she leave. She said she left some items in the plot property. He said, well, you didn't leave anything, but if you did, I'll leave them out in the back door. You get an aggressive officer who arrives on the scene. He 
decides to barge into this man's apartment where a struggle ensues and Mr. Peterson is left dead in his house. He did not have weapons on him, right? And neither did Mealy, as I recall. Neither one of these gentlemen had weapons on them. And here it is. You have both now, right? You have white officer, black subject, black officer, white subject. We don't conflict resolute. And we don't even, it, it's obvious that we don't train as well as we do and as much as we do on shoot to kill on how to shoot to dissolve a situation without killing that person. And that's where I'm going with those two cases. You sent me the complaint. Um, I had noticed in there that you had actually referenced police training a lot or the, the lack thereof, I should say. Yeah. I didn't know this, but I did kind of look up a little bit uh, and noticed that really the only requirement to be a police officer in Oklahoma is that you have, you are of a certain age, I believe is 21 years old, that you have a GED or high school diploma and that you pass 16 weeks of cleat training, which is four months yeah. That's it. Yeah. And when you look again, I know sometimes it's, it's simple for people sometimes to, to sit and, and say, uh, hey, well, you should just do this. You should just do that. But like when you when you when you don't have a full appreciation for who a person is, their their anxiety level, that's the, that's just like me saying, hey, you shouldn't be afraid of spiders. Well, some people are, you know, some people are right um, and I, I think that 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 in these situations, both of them, I think that anyone looking at them could say they didn't have to die. Absolutely. Um, that was a part of the reason why I took the cases. It was it, it wraps perfectly into how we started when when you said, "Look, well, well, why did you write the book?" You know, and so it's it's really me trying my best to bridge the gap between. You know the the community and, and and police relations. I think that that if each side could have, you know, an opportunity to to fully understand each side, we would see how there's only really one side, and that's equity across the board, right? Right. Things should be fully attributed. Period. That's it. Absolutely. You kind of do in a different way with, with um, what you do, what I do. I'm just trying to share stories. I'm trying to tell people like, I didn't know about this. So I doubt that you know about this. And I feel like people should know about everything that we talk about here. Um, Especially since um, we talk about Ada cases a lot. And I'm actually from Ada, Oklahoma. Okay. Born and raised. (laughs) And so, you know, the very first um, kind of, I guess you sh- you could say the very first twist that I heard in the criminal justice system was from Ada with the dreams of Ada. Right. And we have had just person after person wrongfully accused, wrongfully convicted in just Ada alone. In Ada alone. The crazy part was I had not heard about this case until it was brought to me. Wow. So here's the thing, too, and, I, and this is why, you know, I so much appreciate this opportunity, too. And I'm thanking you 
on behalf of the family as well, who I'm sure is thankful already. And that's that that explains their 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 level of, of excitement and angst as well, right? Because no one has been has been uh, been allowing them to be heard. If you go look at the articles that came out before, they were specifically curtailed to not include this information. Look at how long these suits have been filed, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. No one down there has covered this the equal way that I just got done saying we should have. No one has done it. Right, right. And and I feel like that is, um, that's sort of a theme for Ada, Oklahoma, yeah. uh, because I I saw one article. I, I noticed, like you said, when it was filed, and I went back and I saw one article where they said, "Oh, it's a good. It it was a good shooting from the officer." Yeah, yeah. So so we're we're allowing it to be justified in the press, but we're yeah. not allowing the the whole story to be told. There's no transparent. We we just gonna tell you what you should think. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. That's what it was. Hey, no, 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 don't look at that. Look, this is what it was. All right. Exactly. <laughs> and that is yeah. a theme. Every time I hear about something new, I'm like, why didn't I see that in the paper? Why didn't I see yeah. that on the news? Why am yeah. I the first one hearing about this? And I feel like if I haven't heard about it with all of the things that I cover with true crime, if I haven't yeah. heard about it then there's people in Ada that haven't heard about it. And the thing is, so now working down there now, so we got good, you know, local counsel down there, Jack Madeline Jr. And getting to know him and the sap, there's some good folks in Ada. Like, you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm, I'm really like getting tapped in to what's going on. So they can't really explain this either. So it's not like people aren't talking about it with full transparency because they don't, they aren't getting the information. So I'm glad that that you guys came to me and wanted to tell the tell this story on on my podcast. Look at what happened in Ada. Let's try not to let this happen anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, and I'm telling you, if you if you just look at both of these cases here, it, it proves the point that if training and most of the budget went on the actual de-escalation training. We would have more situations where things are de-escalated or it would be more, it would be clearer to folks that deadly force was necessary if you had de-escalation tactics and training that that was implemented. Because if you're doing everything you can to stop something from becoming deadly, it doesn't have to be a big investigation. There's no need to, oh, my podcast wasn't working. I don't, I don't, my, my, somehow my, my body cam was, it, see, you know what I mean? Like, there's no need for all of that if you're doing everything possible to not let it end deadly. So my husband is a paramedic. He mm-hmm. went through three years of training and he does not yeah. carry a weapon. Yet we let people who have gone through 16 weeks of training carry a gun carry a weapon how crazy is that (laughs) they get to figure it out because they're not trained appropriately on what needs to be happening that's it and it's not you know this isn't this isn't saying everything on the police department or the city has to go in the garbage that's not what we're saying what we're saying is listen okay if you are having these incidents and they are on camera 
and we see them, okay, guys? We can, we can see too, all right? Like, we see them and we don't agree with your conclusions, like, that there has to be a focus now on what is de-escalation and what does it look like, right? Because yeah. if I say de-escalation, what does that look like? What If, if you ask an officer, what does de-escalation mean? What would they say? And you know, if you ask a paramedic what de-escalation means, they'll have a very different answer. Of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I definitely believe it. I just want people to follow along with these cases because we're, we're asking for change in these lawsuits. We're not just seeking monetary anything. We're asking for change. Ms. Bailey has made sure that I made a point to talk about the change, the training. That's why it was a theme throughout the the complaint because again, this didn't have to happen. Mr. Peterson was in his home. He could have been talked down. He could have been issued a citation in the mail a day later after he had calmed down. He could have been told to go sleep it off since he's in his own home. There's no way and no excuse his door should have been broken into without a warrant without a valid reason and him be be killed and shot dead in his own home. Yeah. Are you looking at taking on any other cases in Ada? Are you just looking at, you just have these two right now? We'll look at anything when it comes to civil rights violations, because, you know, we have these two cases. So we're familiar with what's going on already. We've been working on these cases now for a couple years now. So it's not like this just started. So that's why I told you, I smile when you, when you said, these cases have been filed for some time and I'm just now hearing about them because they have been. They've been filed 2019 we're talking about, right? So Yeah. Yeah, you sent the I got that complaint and I looked on it and I went 2019. Why are we just now I have never yeah. heard of this. Why are we just now talking about this? I feel like maybe is it what what point are we at in the case? So where we're at right now is We've just, we're almost finished with the discovery in in the case. And basically, that's where you fact find and stuff like that. I'll just say, you know, for the sake of making sure that uh, uh, I am within my ethical bounds, I'll just say there hasn't been fruitful settlement discussions. I would be very interested um, for you to keep me posted. Yeah, absolutely. And even maybe uh, once the, these cases are done and, and we've you've seen them through, maybe come back and yeah. and, get, and talk to us again. Yeah, yeah. People shouldn't die unarmed interactions, you know, with police, especially in their own homes. When something like this happens, it's really hard to know where to turn and what to do. It's difficult because you you're you're relying on on someone to take your case and. Um, you know, to go all the way and, and have the experience knowing what they're doing, right? Uh, and the resources to do it. Because, you know, we, we take these cases on a contingency, so it's not like we get paid, you know, to do do the cases. Like, we, we have to work, you know, and, and, and we take the gamble. But more importantly, we, we look at the cases, not the value of the cases monetary. We, we look at the value of the impact. And when you look at this, you can't have two different instances, switch dynamics, same results, and same reasons why without having a problem. We definitely need a change. Um, so for our listeners out there who want to try to get involved in uh, making a change, what can we do? There could be petitions to City Hall, 
mayor to say, look, we, we got to institute these trainings. We got to see it. I want to see it on the books. I want to see it being done. Whenever there's an election, that's when you have folks' attention. You should ask this question to the constituents before anyone casts a vote. You should know. What, what's your opinion on this? If the person is in charge with instituting, implementing, or making sure that this, this training is done, then you should know, hey, are we doing this? Because like people are dying and they, they really shouldn't. If they're unarmed, they shouldn't die. I don't think you deserve that. You should go watch Hamilton to understand what, what our... Right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and that is all really good uh, information. You know, know who you're voting in, know what they stand yeah. for, because they represent you and what you stand for. I'm so glad um, that you were here with me today. Thank you again. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Really yeah. And, you know, keep me updated. Whenever you want to come back and and tell us what's going on, tell us because who knows? I I might be the only one telling this story. I don't know. Yeah, you are. I mean, right now you definitely are. And so hopefully everyone will start to share and and, and talk about it because like that's all this is about. This is about knowing what's going on. Your opinions are yours, but you should know what's going on. Absolutely. You should be able to make an informed opinion about this. Mm Thank you again, all right? Jarrett, thank you so much. All right, thank you. Take care. I am Christy Bailey. I am the mother of Jeffrey Garrett Peterson. And I'm Donna Whitaker. I'm Garrett's grandmother. Well, of course, I wasn't there, so I can only tell you what I know for certain. Um, She and I were actually at the nail salon here in town when it happened, and my ex-husband... Um, is a truck driver and he was happened to be visiting some friends just down the road from where this happened and he saw the police tape and the cars and called me and said you better get over to your son's house there's something going on there Um, so I went over there and it was taped off I parked across the street I attempted to make my way across the street to see what was going on and they stopped me told me to go back to my car Um, that there had been that someone was in there injured but they couldn't tell me what was going on about that time a friend of Garrett's pulled up Chris Parker and his wife Heather pulled up and said that they heard on a scanner that there was a man dead in that apartment and I'm frantic I'm crying but they told me that I gave them my address I think I gave him my address and then I went back to the nail salon and, and got her and we went home where we waited for eight hours before they ever came to tell me eight hours and they brought some random pastor. I mean, if they would have researched it, they would know that I go to church here in Ada and had a pastor. You know what I mean? They're police. They're supposed to do police work, right? By that time, my mother and father were down from Oklahoma City where we all just waited. My daughter, my parents, all just waiting inside my house for some word, knowing that someone was dead inside there, but not knowing if it was my son. But yes, to get back to that story, from what I know, um, Megan Timmons was asked to leave. She and Garrett had been I know she says they didn't have a romantic relationship, but we think otherwise. I mean, she introduced herself. He told us that he loved her. I, I don't know why she kept saying that, but he did ask her to leave. And she called the police, wanted to get back in the apartment. And then I understand, I understand Garrett held the door and wouldn't let the cops in. He told them that he even called 911 at some point during all of this to, to say that there was an officer trying to break into his apartment. And the rest is all in the complaint. Basically, four police officers couldn't take down one kid, and they shot him. 
in his own home. And you saw the video, but I don't know if you can even comprehend how small this little studio apartment was. The area that all of this struggling took place, I don't even know the square footage, but five by seven, five, five by eight, the size of an area rug. I mean, I'm talking small, maybe, okay, maybe eight by, eight by 10. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but a small raven, very small. So what had happened, and, and um, there, is, there is cam footage, right? Well, we were told the first officer on the scene, the one that forced his way inside, has failed, or it was mount- uh, non-functioning in some way. Go oh. figure. The others recorded it, apparently, but that one um, had failed. He calls back up, and then he and the other officers force his way into the apartment. Um, how do we know what happened there? Is that from the other body cams? Is that from the female witness who was there? Female witness. Okay. Why are we not seeing this, you know, in the media? Why are we not? I saw one article over it uh, in on the, the, on the Ada ne- Evening News, the Ada News it's called now, um, where it basically said that him getting shot in his own home was justified. Right. The, the DA ruled it justifiable. And can I tell you one, uh, another detail about that article in that paper? Sure. They published it in the paper before they ever told me. OSBI didn't tell me. I called the OSBI officer and I said, why would you not tell me? Why would you let me find this out? Second, third, fourth hand. And he said that he had just released the report to them not even two days prior. So how did the Ada News get this story and upload it so quickly to the front page of the paper? But we're not even telling the story of what happened? I reached out to Liz Ann Anderson, which is the local news anchor for this area, as local as our news can get, uh, back when Jarrett sent the complaint to me. And I, she said, forward me the complaint. And I did. I forwarded it on Messenger. I, she never reached out to me again. I sent her several messages after that, and um, I never heard back from her. It seems like we have a cover-up. Yes, ma'am. I cannot imagine what you and your family are going through. And I'm very I'm very happy that you're here talking with me so that maybe we can let people know what's going on, that he was a human being, that he had family that loved him, that he had that he was young and had a full life to live. Um he was young. He was um he did have a problem with alcohol, so I, I moved him to Ada to um where he got a job at Pepsi where he was thriving. Um, he was respected. He, he always had the, uh, I guess they, um, he loaded or packed pallets of Pepsi products that would be loaded on the truck. That was his job in the warehouse. And, um, he was always the, in the number one slot for the most, uh, pallets packed or whatever. And he was very proud of that. Um, Garrett was a, a good kid. He was, a um, at his eulogy, his boss gave the eulogy and he described Garrett as a searcher. And I love that. Garrett was a searcher. He was just, you know, just figuring it out, just figuring out life. Um, he'd never been married, never had any children. He lived with me growing up from the time until he was 15, and he went to live with his dad in North Carolina, um, where he graduated high school. He played football. He actually won the championship when he was in eighth grade in Fort Worth, Texas, where we lived um, for his football team. He was a gamer. Uh, he was super smart. Anything electronic. He would always hook the electronics up for his mom because I'm, I'm not as electronically inclined as he is. He was a good kid. He was a good kid. I miss him very much. Never hurt a soul. One time we were living in Oklahoma City and uh, there was a woman next door that was a victim of domestic violence. And we had taken her to her sister's house, I mean, literally right next door. But their fights would take place outside Garrett's bedroom. 
And I went to bed one night. We, I could hear them inside my house fighting. And I, I, I begged Garrett to just go to bed. We can't, there's nothing we can do about it. We, we can't help her unless she wants to, to get out of there. We can't do anything about it. So just go to bed. Well, he didn't go to bed. He went out there and, and helped the woman and um, actually got the guy off of her that was beating her up. He's just, he would never hurt anyone. He was just a good, he was just a good kid. Tell me how Jarrett found you guys, right? I actually um, had a a guy that worked at Rolling Hills that I didn't know. He, had, he was an RN, but he worked and left the hospital where I work. But he reached out to me after the Anthony Mealy case was, was public, I think. But he reached out to me and said that this attorney in New York City wanted to speak with me. Like he found me on Facebook Messenger and said that he wanted to talk to me about my son's case. So I called him in New York City and he was just mortified and he was just, he was on it. I mean, he was, he just couldn't believe it. The Open Records Act and he had me, you know what I mean? He just couldn't believe it. And every, the further he got into the case, the, the more, the more disgusted he is, you know, and was and should be. It's a complete, I mean, they violated every civil, li- civil liberty that my son had. Yeah. Every liberty. Yeah. I mean, we should, we're not even safe in our own homes. And then they can just holler, you know, of course, they're going to say, oh, he reached for my gun or, oh, um, he's resisting arrest. Well, what were they in his apartment for in the first place? They never should have been inside there. Exactly. These are things that we need to be talking about. You know, part of me, um, like you said, out for blood. I mean, this is my firstborn child. Okay, they, they, I mean, you can't hurt a mother worse than what they've done. So it took everything I had not to blast it on social media, not to picket the police department out front. But part of me, I said, I'm going to let OSBI investigate this. I'm going to let them do their job. I really tried to be, because I mean, instantly I wanted it, I wanted everything done right. So that if, when it came down to, wrongdoing i mean frankly we were shocked we knew something was up we knew that this this couldn't have gone like this garrett's landlord came over and said look i've i've rented properties in this town for 30 years and i've never sued anybody he said but i'm going to tell you right now you need to get a lawyer something is not right with this case the police were insisting on megan going back in that apartment why why did they want her back inside there the osbi officer he could, the osbi officer said you know, they, or he, the landlord told the cops, look, I'm going to release this property and everything in here to his family. You are not going in there. Like he knew enough about the law that the police could not enter Garrett's apartment after his demise. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's something that I have wondered as well, because, okay, you have somebody who's, who's kicking someone out and they're saying, well, my stuff is in there. And, and to me, that's like a sheriff's department issue. It's a civil matter. Yeah, like, exactly. The police are supposed to walk away and call somebody else. There was no violence, sir. Yes, and especially if it has to do with getting property back, not we need to break down the door and, and get that T-shirt you left there last night. Like, that just sounds ridiculous. Um, I would like to add that it, at the very first, when they uh, she found out something had gone wrong over there, she went there and they told her to get in her car and go home and somebody would come and talk to her later. She's upset, she's scared, and they put her in her car and send her home. Let me drive. Hysterically crying. Yeah, and have her drive herself home. And she this happened at like 10 in the morning. Nine. 9.45, 10 o'clock a.m. Yeah, and she called me at noon and said, Mom, something's happened at Garrett's apartment. I live in Oklahoma City. And I said, okay. And I thought, I, can, I can't I can get there before they get to Christy. So 
I said, just let me know when they get there and we'll go from there. When when you got there, how long was it that you were there until you were even approached by a, a police officer? I couldn't even get, I parked across the street from him, which is on Ar, um, Arlington. So it's four lanes there. Um, and I, w- I parked on the opposite side from Garrett's apartment. I made it not through the first lane, if that makes sense. The nearest lane to me before two officers Maybe three. Oh gosh, it's a blur. I'm sorry, but they met me before I could ever get across there to where the tape was. And, and you told him who you were. I told him who I was and that that was my son's apartment. And I had to get in there that that was my son's apartment and I needed to know what happened. And what did they say to you at that time? No, they said they couldn't tell me anything. That, that something had, there was, I don't even know if they said there was a shooting there, but something had happened and there was. There was something, an injury happened there, but they couldn't tell me anything about it at this time. To go home, to drive myself home, and they would come find me. So they didn't even tell you at the time that no. he had passed away? No. And you had to wait for, how long was it to learn that? Uh, eight hours. Eight hours. Well, it's a small town, so we're hearing all of these things. You we know, I heard it on the, friends had heard it on the, yeah, and on the CB radio or whatever you call it. And the OSBI, when he came in, we asked something about, well, what about the taser? And he said, there was no taser. And Christy said, well, we've already heard that there was taser. And then come to find out it was on his autopsy report that he was tased. And we were so wanting to trust OSBI. But they let us down, too. And cops investigating cops is pretty sketchy. Yeah. And I cannot imagine hearing that over... Uh, like a CV radio instead of from someone who's supposed to be an authority on this, someone who's supposed to be informing me what's happening with my son. This isn't just about monetary gains. No. No. You cannot put a price on the life of your son. It's about telling his story and hopefully fixing this so that yes. it does not happen it ever must. again. Yes, that's our goal. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, I appreciate y'all being here with me. Thank Thank you for having us. We appreciate you so much. From the words of Donna Strickland Whitaker, Garrett's grandmother. Jeffrey Garrett Peterson blessed our family on April 2nd, 1990 in Bedford, Texas. He was the first child and firstborn grandchild on both sides, so needless to say, he is well represented in the family photo albums. Garrett graduated high school in Greensboro, North Carolina. He then studied computer science through Job Corp. Kind, witty, smart, and brave are only a few of the words that describe our sweet Garrett. If you were lucky enough to be in his circle, you were cherished beyond measure. He knew your love for him and undoubtedly loved back double. Christy was a senior when Garrett was born. I carried Garrett at six weeks old to his mommy's graduation from high school. Daddy was in the Navy in San Diego. When Garrett was three months old, he and mommy moved to California after living with us his first three months. I thought my heart would break when they left with him. Thank goodness Garrett's granddad, Peterson, was an executive for American Airlines, making it possible to see him frequently as a toddler. One particular flight time was 2.40. As a two-year-old, he heard that time so much that he decided his arm was the watch, and it was always 2.40. What time is it, Garrett? He looked at his bare arm and always said, 2.40. We still have a feeling of closeness to him when we see the time is 2.40. 
Him being our first grandbaby, his first Christmas was very educational for us. He wanted Barney. We had no clue who Barney was. It didn't take time to learn that Barney had dominated the world. Garrett thought he should be allowed to play football without practice. The coach had different rules. He didn't practice, therefore he didn't get to play. One particular game, several players were injured. The coach told Garrett to suit up. That night he played kicker, offense, and defense positions in the same game. The team won. Garrett was an avid Longhorns fan. Garrett was an amazing young man. He was kind, respectful, and generous. He overcame many obstacles and was making a wonderful life for himself. He was employed with Pepsi Bottling Company in Ada. He loved his job and his co-workers. His co-workers loved him. He was a hard worker and an exemplary employee. He always took pictures of his recognition awards and sent them to his mother. His co-workers shared many stories of a young man with great personality and a huge appetite. He would eat SpaghettiOs for snacks and then move on to dinner. He loved his gaming systems, of which he had many, and he also had a love for a 1989 Camaro that he worked on and had it running like a new one. He was hoping to paint it and add new interior soon. He was quite the fisherman. He spent many nights on the lake or river with his fishing pole in the water. Garrett left behind many, many loved ones. His mother, Christy Bailey, his father, Jeffrey Dennis Peterson, a brother, Alex Carter William Smith, a sister, Sienna Smith, another sister, Jennifer Peterson, and plenty of nieces, aunts, cousins, and so, so many more who loved him. Garrett now has a small shrine in Donna's yard that she calls Garrett's Garden. She says she decorates it for every holiday and that her neighbors must think that she's nuts when she goes out to it and says, Hi, buddy. Donna also says Garrett's life was taken just at the age in life of the hopefulness and expectations of young manhood. He was a son, brother, grandson. He was a human being. Our family will never be the same. The pain is with us each and every day. His mother grieves for him every day. I hear the pain in her voice as she cries over the loss of her beautiful son. Garrett will never walk through the door again. We will never hear him say, Hi, Mom, or Hi, Grandma. Every Christmas, he is gone. Every Thanksgiving, he is gone. Every birthday is a painful, emotional day. No party, no hugs, no gifts. Just another day to get through and the remaining question of why. An urn with Garrett's ashes has taken the place of a vibrant, caring, and giving person who was loved by his friends and family. Thanks for listening to this episode of Raven's Reviews. Catch more next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?